like a clown, no, those is all pages Bagging, boarding Batman in the gutter like a Macy Storytellers, we some fellas, we some felons in the mazes Acapella, Vericella, cause this shit is so contagious Mouse on the summaries, compile and guide the show While the cycle spitting knowledge on the Yeti like a pro Keep the babble, we the rabble, don't step to the squad We get active and haters like a cephalopod You don't like fish talk? Do you hate a tomato? We the cuttlefish killers, tentacles on the tape Greatest five stars if you cherish your life Bucky Barnes hit squad spraying lead in your pipe Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Is This Just Bad? Is This Just Bad? The best podcast you've never heard of. I'm your host, Professor Mouse Twitter. is always by the Super Cosmologist. And joined for second week in a row by Teddy. Teddy, what up? Hey, what's up, y'all? <laughs> yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. That's very exciting. Uh, maybe we'll get to a place where it is joined as always. Uh, but for now, we love having you for whenever we can catch you. Uh, hey, folks. Yeah, Teddy. I've Teddy, got... Teddy, you were doing some fucking deadlifting yesterday, dude. Yeah. How much did you I, get, my man? So, unfortunately, I had to take about eight months off from my training. Um, so I, I slipped back. I don't think I, it'll be a while before I build back up to where I was. I only hit three forty-five yesterday. Only oh, three forty-five. Yeah, the build-up for the most humble of humble breaks. <laughs> It, it's well i mean my old one my old pr is 520 um and i've I, so yeah my deadlift is 520 and my last squat was 480 um but again those are like the my entire body is screaming at me i feel like i have the flu after that type of lift so oh that reminds me this is very quick because we got to get into what we're going to talk about um but I, so i started watching a show when I exercise, I like to watch a reality show because it's kind of like, you know, just in the background noise type of thing. And sometimes it's interesting. So weirdly, I exercise a lot watching like Beat Bobby Flay. <laughs> just like nice. kettlebell snatch and being like, how oh, is he going to make this chicken? Um, but so yesterday I was like on Netflix and there was a show called Physical 100. And I was like, oh, I saw this. It looks like Squid Games. Squid dude, games with jacked it, people. It is Squid Game. It's the fucking Squid Game in real life show. So this fucking show is crazy. It is a uh, hundred uh, people in South Korea who have like different physiques, but they're all like fit somehow. So they're like a Taekwondo person, uh, somebody who was on like the uh, gym gymnastics team, the national Olympic team, like deadlifters, uh, dancers. So they all have like different types of physiques and the thesis of the show is we're going to find out who has the best uh like who has the the physique that is most suited to all facets of fitness and so like the first challenge is just hanging from a bar for as long as you can and like the gymnasts and the dancers and the crossfitters do really well and then the like the power lifters do fucking horribly because they're so heavy um but the weird thing about the show is that it is very self-consciously put together just like squid game and so like the first thing they do is they all come into a room and then a voice emerges over the pa system like the disembodied voice from squid game and tells them what to do there are like guards who i think are wearing like covid masks or whatever so they look like they have fucking uh the squid game masks on and then they shepherd them into a room and they don't know what the challenge is beforehand 
and they there's like a grid it has one to 100 on it and they say pick a number they sit they stand on top of the number and then as the like the challenge is being sort of um unveiled they realize they have to hang on the thing they get ready to do it and then the fucking uh floor opens up and there's just this like fog and they realize that once they fall they're going to be falling into something they can't see and so they just made squid game dude this is the whole meme about like you know the uh, silicon valley company announces that they've made torment nexus from the critically acclaimed please do not make the torment nexus that's <laughs> uh, in invariably every time there's some kind of dystopian very popular uh social commentary cautionary tale somebody's like that's a great idea let's do that for real yeah yeah it, it, it can't it can't really survive past the first episode like the mystery because then Mm-hmm. Then you realize they're just falling into a, a pool of water, and then everybody's like very supportive of each other and shit like that. And they don't, and they're die. not actually dying yet, right? That's going to be my next question is do they kill one at the end of every episode? Um, good, glad it that's not there no. at one point. Jeez, I assume all the CrossFitters are like assuming they're going to win, right? Because isn't that the whole point of CrossFit is well rounded, good at everything? Yeah, that's kind of like. You know, it's interesting. I only watched the first episode and a crossfitter won the first challenge. Um, and two crossfitters were in the last three. Um, a crossfitter beat oh no, it wasn't a crossfitter. It was uh it was a it was like a our equivalent of like Delta Force in Korea is one of those hmm. guys. And apparently they just have like this uh just this like mental toughness where they're not like the strongest or the most fit but they are kind of like indoctrinated to like endure hella discomfort because this is interesting because i was watching man versus bear which we've talked about in a previous episode and so far the person who's done best at that is also she was like an air force engineer or something but all of the big power lifter dudes all of the mma fighters all the like you know bodybuilders everybody who does it sort of recreationally or competitively was huge and this little lady one lasted the the longest against the bear was most mentally tough was smartest about using her environment effectively um to like do tug of war against this giant creature and there's something i think about being professionally broken down and built back up and to endure in extreme amounts of pain and discomfort yeah that that supersedes just raw strength yeah that endurance of having to be like just still for days like there are like delta force snipers who have to hide undercover and like be still for 24 hours just casing a joint yeah Uh, are you familiar with the uh habibs from uh uh, from uh, mixed martial arts, his his gym. Oh yeah, yeah, the Dagestani's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So one of the things, that, so uh, again, one of the only sports ball things I enjoy, MMA, to yeah. the uh, <laughs> to the listeners. Uh, but one of the things I was looking at and listening on one of the commentary is that the re they postulate that his gym and the Dagestani are so 
rack up so many wins because they train in a very militaristic style where it's just you know you if you don't get enough sleep he kicks you out of the gym you don't get your phone until the next day until you get eight hours they Mm -hmm. pray five times a day they have very specific like you don't drink you don't do you don't go out partying you are very regimented and Mm -hmm. as a whole they are one of the I think they're one of the top ranked gyms outside of the Gracies that just has a I would have to look at the numbers but it's it's insane how many wins the team racks up yeah no because they like are and they're they're trained to wrestle from when they're little kids too and so they develop mm-hmm. like uh this 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 otherworldly strength that you get from just constant repetition so like he has apparently the craziest grip strength that anybody like has felt in the octagon khabib does and all of his cousins are the same because they're just always they spend their entire life squeezing shit and so their squeeze is just like out of this world. Like he he submitted Conor McGregor without actually choking him. He was just squeezing his head. Like he never got his fucking forearm underneath Conor's neck. He just squeezed his fucking head, and Conor was like, "It might pop off." Like, I don't like this is a dangerous position. Um, but yeah, speaking of pop off. That's what they do in Andor, the show. Yeah, I'm ready to pop off. I've got a, I've got an extra special trash or good for you all that I want to set the stage with. Trash or good sequels. Trash or good. This is a crazy. This is which ones? <laughs> no, just the concept. Has it done more harm or good? TV and movies. I would I know say that's a crazy more, more good. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I think that like contemporary sequels, which is probably where you're going with this. Um, there's a sequel problem right now, and it is, it is fascinating to see where this conversation goes because there's something so uh, classical, almost it seems, about like a Godfather Two or an Empire Strikes Back. There's almost mm-hmm. something impossible about those kinds of things where it's like the second one is like actually way like it, i mean it, it it does something different than the first one but it continues the story and it goes in a different way and like it that to me i can't think of and i'll try to think of as we're talking about this a contemporary example of a godfather 2 or an empire strikes back or something but yes yeah. please lay it out yeah, that, no, that's, a, that's a great point because I think, yeah, it's a facetious question. I, one of the things we love the most because we're obsessed with world building and continuity and you know, exploring stuff is you, know, you set the groundwork and then the sequel gives you so, much possi- so many possibilities to explore and to deepen and to, you know, to go in, in new directions. And so, yes, in theory, that's great. You need to balance it, though, with what I like to call sequel bloat. And this is interesting, especially in the context of Disney. So today we're going to talk about Andor. We're going to talk, which is a prequel, but you get the idea. And uh, Wakanda Forever, as is the theme of the show, piping hot takes about totally ice cold content that everybody's already seen. (laughs) But I just watched them, so I'm not mad about it. So we're going to talk about it. So when we think about Disney specifically, what's important to remember is despite all of the pomp and circumstance of the MCU and Disney Plus and all of that, Disney was traditionally known as the purveyor of the straight-to-VHS, 
So, you know, straight to your home, really, really bad. You're Lion King 2, you're Aladdin 2, um, you know, uh, all of those sort of co- fa- faded copies of copies of copies. And the intense pressure to just pump out more of the same, I think, um, it, it becomes this like really difficult, a conflagration of bad ideas and bad habits when you also have the um, pressure to just produce content. So we want more of the same thing, and we also want a lot of more of the same thing. So we're going to have 12 episodes on Disney+. Plus. And um, so here, my my initial takes are that you could have flipped the way Black Panther, sorry, Wakanda Forever, and Andor were presented. I think a 12-episode Wakanda series and an hour-long Andor movie are actually the best way to go about this. My impression of Andor was that there is, hiding inside 12 hours of sequel bloat, a really, really good, like, Count of Monte Cristo story that could have been, like, a really tight 90 minutes. And we were instead subjected to just stretching. Um, So, start there. I know, uh, Mouse, you said you really liked bits of Andor, and I and I want to start with you because as our resident Star Wars expert, and I know you really appreciate being able to like go into the details of the world, what worked for you about this show? Everything. I love that show. I can't think of a single Star Wars uh, thing, piece of media, with the exception maybe of the High Republic books now, um, that works as well as Andor from moment to moment. I, and this is me as somebody who's been very jaded and has watched like everything from the Clone Wars to prequels, uh, like multiple times of prequels, um, multiple times the original trilogy. I just rewatched the sequel trilogy. Um, <laughs> Star Wars is, is bad. Star Wars is bad. <laughs> and a, a lot of it is bad. They have made a lot of bad stuff. It was to me, very compelling to have a show where we dealt with all of the things that happen in this universe that are the results of a broader sort of um, authoritarian regime that don't deal in any kind of like hero's journey nonsense. It is refreshing to have a a competent anti-hero as the protagonist of the show um they tried i think to do that with solo and it was a disaster for several reasons that i don't really know mm-hmm. all of the specificities of and so andor functions as a kind of ersatz on solo um somebody who is swept into the rebellion uh in a, in a very kind of um reluctant way and he is also this kind of like disaffected kid who's adopted brought so he's like totally unmoored from his 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 reality there are people missing questions that don't get resolved and i like that they went there because it's like maybe his sister just doesn't exist anymore and that is a consequence of the empires like the destabilization of families the destabilization of economies the use of convict labor, like all of that stuff, all of these different kind of pieces that 
happen at different levels and sort of articulate various forms of power. Mon Mothma is in the original fucking uh, trilogy for like half a second. And, and also that same actress is in Rogue One. And that same actress is in Rogue One and does, and, and, and now we get this, this story of like palace political intrigue. You have this other story of uh, Scrappy Rebellion. Um, the show arguably is sort of like co-opting or doing better what The Matrix Reloaded was trying to do. You have this sort of like ragtag group of people at the very beginning. It defends its ability, it defends its reason for existence because there is, uh, they aren't doing the smash and grab job for 12 episodes. That happens in three. Mm -hmm. And then they have a different thing that happens in the next three. And then they have a different thing that happens in the next three. And we intercut between characters who represent uh, low-level bureaucracy. Uh, this person's a cop. This person's a manager. This person is uh, on, in the managerial part. This person lives in the underbelly of, of the outer rim. These are the people of Ferrix. These are, like, to me, it was a great pastiche of an area of Star Wars that is intrinsically interesting, but that has been totally untapped. Um, and this is something that is, is going to sound like a diss, but competent storytelling. The, Star Wars lacks from, or Star Wars has lacked that. And I think that, I think his name is Gareth Edwards, the guy who did Rogue One and also this series, is one of the best plotters that has touched the Star Wars property. Um, better even for my money, considering how bad the Book of Boba Fett was, uh, than John Favreau and even Dave Filoni. I think he has positioned himself to be like, oh, this guy gets Star Wars probably more than anybody, at least in the films. This is really interesting because what you have just described on paper um, sounds like an awesome show. And I think our disagreement is going to be about the definition of moment to moment because those themes are all definitely there. Um, and by the time you get to the end of the series, seeing the the big um, blow off like riot, um, against the stormtroopers at the end. Um, and I love, in theory, the bouncing between different elements and seeing the various um, consequences of Empire. That's fascinating. The um, the incel rent-a-cop who, like, yeah. desperately wants to be a real Nazi. Um, like, seeing these in almost in the same way that The Wire attempts to, like, show you at different levels of, like, different consequences of of the way the system kind of spider webs out so definitely that's all there and i'm gonna sing the praises of rogue one a little bit later because i rewatched that after getting kind of burned out watching andor um, i've got some examples of i think what moment to moment doesn't work for me but before i get there uh teddy you've also seen all of andor so initial impressions uh initial impressions i'm i i would i need to agree with mouse in terms of how the show the the shows i almost say phases really in work in concert and in some ways kind of reacting to what you're saying i almost look at andor like three different movies that were cut up into a larger series so you have the smash and grab heist movie which solo tried to do didn't quite do mm -hmm. you have the 
um, prison escape movie, which Solo tried to do and didn't quite do. <laughs> and then you have theme, the yeah. return and rebelling, which right. Solo tried to like. Essentially, the way I'm looking at it, and this is kind of coming off the top of the dome, but I'm beginning to realize this was Andor was essentially what I wanted Solo to be, or at least one of the entries in Solo. Um, and it got rid of a lot of the issues I've had with a lot of the Disney Plus properties where, or not Disney Plus, but some of the Disney movies like Eternals. If there was an Andor style Eternals 12 episode, let's explore the thing, would have been perfect. But that movie was so bloated that it didn't quite mesh. In terms of what you're talking about when it comes to sequels, though, obviously, I, I almost don't look at Andor as a sequel. I guess it's a prequel, but I, I look at it in terms of it's an artifact of a different genre. You have the heist genre as well as the prison break genre. I agree. A raid style movie that was breaking out of a Star Wars prison would be amazing. And they sort of have that in those, I think it was three or four episodes worth um, in the show proper. So I, I, I liked it for kind of that reason. And it, it felt refreshing to me, but uh, I, I'd love to hear what. Okay. Yeah. Time to fight. What felt uh, like. no, yeah. This is, this is good. And so here's the thing. Um, this cast is great overall, really, really great actors. Um, in some cases, like really interesting, Interesting. I love all the Mon Mothma, co Mon Mothma costume design and seeing Coruscant and the idea of being able to show us places that we haven't really seen and to Mouse's point, focus on characters who aren't, you know, the chosen dynasty um, is good. Um, and it's something that Rogue One does incredibly effectively as well. And I think more effectively. What is weird to me about Andor is in its attempt to show us I guess like the daily lives of the everyday folk, um, it feels awfully stretched out to the point where we see scenes, and I'm thinking from an actor's perspective, and I think um, Incel Guy is a good example, um, or the ISB uh, investigator lady. There's a lot of scenes where we cut back to them, and no, no new information is actually shared about them. The guy, the incel guy basically has the same conversation with his mom four or five times. And you can tell because the actor has to play the same emotion four or five times and they don't really have anywhere to go. There's not a whole lot of escalation or de-escalation. They don't have different emotions. They've got basically the same expressions on their face every single time. What it feels to me like they are, they had a draft and usually when you're making a movie, you know, the initial screenplay is like four hours long and then you cut and you cut and you cut to find the best version of the joke. And they had the best version of the joke, but also the second best version and the third best version and the fourth best version. But they've got 12 episodes, so they might as well just keep cutting back to the same guy and we'll see it again. And if you're really invested in these characters, maybe f having the, that additional time with them works. I found it exhausting. Um, I think that there is an economy of um of scale i guess it's the op the opposite economy of scale it's anyway it doesn't matter i think you can get a, you can get the same message across faster um and make it punchier and i don't think this needed 12 episodes um now example specific example um andy circus brilliant actor uh, interesting enough character um <laughs> 
this is this is one of my favorite characters in the series. Go ahead. Yeah, and, and I think he's fantastic, and he represents what he represents is really, really interesting. As he's the overseer, he's stuck in the cycle, he's stuck in the system, he's responsible for you know, he's got there's like a whole like Shawshank thing going on with him, and we don't really learn much about him. You know, the old guy that's on the that's on the line with um with Andor. We don't we understand that he's old. We understand that he's going to die. We never get like a conversation about who his family is. There's a lot of little things we could do to deepen that character of like, hey, I've been in here long enough. My son could be as old as you are now uh, and or like little things to, to tie in those characterizations. And instead, we get pretty thin characterizations. And so the thing that popped in to our head and I'm going to credit Maul with these because these are really interesting is when you know one way out, they're all escaping the prison. They get to the where they're going to jump off into the ocean. And Andy Serkis says, I can't swim. And then it cuts. And you never see him again. You just never see him again. And there's no resolution. And then, you know, the next time we see Andor, it's him and one other guy. And then we get to the end of the episode before they even mention what happened to those other people. I don't know. Never get that resolved. The thing that bothers me about that last scene, because Andy Serkis is playing it really well, but he doesn't have much to play with. We haven't gotten enough of his character to know which of the two potential possibilities is more likely. I'm going to play two potential missing scenes. One, he jumps off with them or he's forced off with them and they have like a Star Trek for laughing, you know, in the water and all of the guys who he's been leading say, we'll carry you, we'll, we'll help you float, we'll literally have collective action to take care of you because you've taken care of us. And it's like cathartic because he's able to escape with them. Or two, if it's tra- if you want to play it for tragedy, you see him walk back into the prison because he is stuck in the cycle and he can never escape. And although he has said all of these things about working together, he's, you know, it's the promised land like Moses can't enter the, you know, he's, he's lost. I can't tell you which of those two things is more likely because I don't feel like I know that guy well enough, even though I spent like four episodes with him. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it's all very effective, though. I mean, there there is a degree to which, as prisoners, they have been totally erased of an identity. And the way that they interact with one another is through labor. And so the way that we to understand those characters is in the very subtle way that they engage with their labor um, and their various positions within the context of that prison. And Andy Serkis's character has an absolutely, I think, tragic arc that is clearly articulated because he has been so indoctrinated by the system and the sort of modicum of power that he's received that he has turned against everybody. And there are moments of humanity in this character where the doctor is there and they realize that nobody's getting out and that he has been sold a bill of goods that uh, and that he has contributed to his own exploitation and so he knows where that fucking prison is he knows he's not going to be able to get out and retrospectively you realize oh he's doing this 
and it's not going to benefit him in any way. So the character has made an entire shift over the course of that arc that I think is beautifully played and beautifully scripted as well. Other thing the show does is in the very beginning establishes that people are lost. We don't know where they are and their stories don't get resolved. And that is mm-hmm. the tragic part of living under an autocratic regime. It's like the Salvadorans that are uh, disappeared, like the, the, the people who have just went missing during this regime of like, uh, autocracy in El Salvador. They call them the disappeared because they just left. They're just gone. They're off the face of the earth. I had a sister. I don't know where she is anymore. This show, so many people just disappear. And I think that that is like a tragic, poignant part of the show, which is why I think that it transcends Star Wars in a way because of this fucking subtlety in here. There's nothing subtle about Star Wars. And this show has so much subtlety ingrained in it that it is fucking honestly weird to watch. And, you know, I, I do understand. I think it would have been nice to know a little bit about those characters, but I think that there is a very clear vision articulated here. And I think all of these choices are very intentional. And I think they're saying stuff that is like very uncomfortable. This is not Canto Bite. This is not like fucking, uh, you know, Finn on top of a horse and them doing some kind of like, some kind of like critique of animal cruelty and also like, you know, the same people that make X-Wings make fucking uh, uh, machines for the rebel fighters. Yeah. Yeah. This is a much more sort of nuanced take on all of that shit. So I don't know. Uh, tell you what do you think? Oh, no. In yeah, terms of... Oh, <laughs> oh, whoever, whoever. Yeah, Teddy, go ahead. <laughs> oh, no, I was just saying, um, I think one of the things to... A, a good comparison of this show is looking at this be- between Andor, Book of Boba Fett, and Mandalorian on how they treat genre shifts kind of show exactly i think what um the cosmologist is also kind of talking about when it comes to economy of characters i think that in terms of getting to know people you get to know from exactly what you're saying you get to know the leader of the that wing when they're in the prison to the degree that well andor would know him because they are reduced to a number they are reduced to parts and then eventually you get to see the critical moment of choice. One of the things that I think it does really well builds up the idea of Andor only goes to the smash and grab for the money. Andor goes to the prison and leads the riot only because he wants his stuff back. It is not until he gets to his home planet during the funeral where he goes, now the rebellion makes sense. This is an interesting point because- But you don't see that in Book of Boba Fett. And then if we go even further in Mandalorian one and two, you get to see a much more concentrated version of exactly what you're talking about. Uh, cosmology, you see like a much it's drawn out, but it's one person and kind of one POV as you're going through with these recurring characters like uh, uh, Bill Burr's character in that you get you you see yeah. him once doesn't matter, but then you get an incredibly potent um monologue when he is yeah, about to blow scene. up that's so uh, i'm sorry i didn't that's no, okay that. no that's i was gonna cut you off so that's fine um <laughs> fair point um 
to me, I like what you're saying about Andor, you know, it forcing him to make a choice because for a lot of the show, it feels like reading Candide. Are we familiar with you know, Voltaire's Candide here where um, stuff just kind of happens to that dude? Like, and it's, it's, I mean, it's a satire, but it really is just like a never ending wave of un, uh, bizarre events that just sort of like overwhelm him. And he gets buffeted about, you know, like a unmoored ship from bouncing from absurd, uh, thing to absurd thing. And watching Rogue One, um, the actor who plays Andor is Diego Luna. Is that right? Um, he's, He's fantastic, and you get he doesn't have a whole lot of screen time in Rogue One because it's a it's a quick movie, um, and you understand his depth. and He's got a, a couple of really good speeches about I've been in this fight since I was six, and you know we've all done terrible things for the rebellion, and we have to like keep going or none of it was worth it. And you get a sense about his like inner life, and in Andor, he just kind of spends most of the show looking confused as things happen to him. And it sounds like what I'm hearing is that you think that's an intentional choice to have him get like overwhelmed by circumstance until he is forced to like make a stand or do something. Yeah. It's a story about somebody who has to scratch and claw their way through life, living under an autocratic regime who existed in and was reared in on a planet that had uh, what would be equivalent to like an indigenous population that was uh, totally wiped out. Who has be? I mean, it is just a Han Solo story. It, it like to have a a a mode of life where the only thing I care about. There's only one thing I really care about that can activate me to be back in, inside of this sort of like. Um, uh, rebellion and that that is my family um and they do a, a a really good job i think of sketching his relationship out with his mother despite the fact that they are rarely ever together the his home going is incredibly impactful i think that there is a lot of economy in the show um and i don't think that they spend a ton of time with a lot of character i feel like that relationship was really powerful and they really only have like two conversations. Um, and yeah, so I think that there is a, a lot of intentionality built into this show. And there's, I think, enough time spent with things um, and a lot of characters who are able to communicate through glances. Like the character of Santa is very interesting to me. That character has maybe six minutes of screen time. And does so much in those six minutes. Uh, we learn that uh, she's in a relationship with Val, um, but through like an offhand comment that the guy from Luke Cage says. Um, not Luke Cage. What, what fucking show was that guy in? Uh, that's the guy that plays uh, Microchip or whatever the fuck his name is. You don't know what uh, I'm Oh, yeah. Oh, the from Punisher. Punisher? The Punisher, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's fucking Micro. Um, I didn't recognize him without any without any facial hair. Yeah, and he's great in the show too. Um, and there are also so many characters who come in, like the kid that's writing the manifesto, and he gets like six minutes of screen time, and then he's like narrating the final battle that comes out. I think it's so well fought. I I I I don't know. All right, we're gonna. I think that they could have done all of this in six episodes instead of twelve. 
I guess is my point, is that um, there seems to, to me, and it sounds like you appreciate this just sort of like sitting with these characters and watching them just like go to work and then do stuff. And to me, it feels like that um, rather than sharpening the focus on what's happening um, ends up just sort of stretching out what was a smaller amount of story to tell. I would have, I think I could, you know, I could cut this down into almost an anthology show of one episode about Mon Mothma's experience and one episode about the Rent-A-Cop and one episode about the prison. And you see all of the same stuff and, I, and we preserve all of the really interesting um, leveling of, you know, how does the empire affect these spies versus these dudes versus these workers versus these prisoners. Um, and then have it all tie up at the end, kind of the way the first season of The Witcher does, where each episode is kind of a self-contained story, and then you realize at the end that they've all been building to something. Um, my issue, I think, with is very much like the original Game of Thrones issue of the constant intercutting between so many characters and trying to keep them all um, kind of plate spinning at the same time, as opposed to spending a single episode focusing on them, means that the final advancement of story takes longer. Um, but it's you don't actually tell more story. You eliminate a lot of the drama, though, when you do that, because the reveal that Belle is Mon Mothma's sister can't happen if you have one show devoted to Mon Mothma, or one episode. The reveal of who is a spy working for the other side, as they start to develop, you have these sort of like moments of um, sort of like uh, oblique familiarity. And so the guy who is serving under um, uh, the major who's investigating the incident on Ferrix, they keep cutting to this dude and he has his face and it's like, oh, is he going to turn on her? Is he going to throw her under the bus? He keeps giving uh, important information to the superior, kind of under undercutting her authority. What's his deal? And then he goes into an elevator. He's talking Stellan's cars guard. And you realize, oh, this guy's a fucking spy for the rebels. And that, I think all of that is very intentionally done and it's woven throughout the story in a way where, oh, no, here's a new revelation. Here's something new that's unfolding that is, I think important for a show that is so rooted in like spycraft and shit. It's like you can't tell everybody's story or everybody's arc individually and have it all wrap up at the end. No, this thing is has twists and turns and shit like that. Like I don't know why Stellan Skarsgård is looking for Andor. I mean, it makes sense he's looking for him to kill him, but there there seems to be like a fucking loyalty that exists between him and Bell and all of these people who are also like scattered about the galaxy. So I don't know. Yeah, I think that um, I like the story it was telling, and it simply did not hold my attention to be, to tell it that slowly. And I think the point of comparison is Rogue One. So basically, we watched Andor, we we muscled through it, and like at the end, it's like, oh, okay, cast was really good. I get what they were going for. I think it took what like eleven hours too long, or six hours too long. Rogue One, and again, Teddy's not seen this yet, but has seen it all on Tumblr essentially. Um, is beautiful um rogue one is the perfect antidote because i finished andor being like man maybe i don't just don't like star wars maybe i don't you know this isn't for me and then rogue one is so freaking sweet and tragic and does a similar story um where you have there's no like galactically powered hero in the show 
or in Rogue One, the movie, it's a bunch of like random people and they are suffering and like trying to like to figure it out and they're totally doomed. Um, And it is really a domino effect of one person makes one really heroic act and sacrifices themselves that allows the next person to make a really heroic act and sacrifice themselves. And all the little people and all of their little struggles add up to something. And it is, um, it still has a lot of the drama of the turnarounds of like, why are they looking for her dad? What are they going to do when they find her dad? Oh shit, they were going to kill her dad. And then, um, you know, the, the back and forth of, is her dad still collaborating with the Empire or not? And so I think a lot of the same beats and a lot of the same themes that are in Andor are, it's like a, it's like concentrated washing machine liquid. You know, you don't need to use the whole cap. You just have a little like teaspoon and it gets all your washing done. Um, that's the experience I have with Andor. Like it's so, um, such a gut punch of, uh, but you walk away. I walked away with Rogue One and be like, man, I wish there was a series focusing on Cassian Andor. He's so cool. I wish I knew more about him. And yet nothing in season one of Andor, and I assume there's going to be a season two because they'll try to make these forever really deepens my appreciation of his character in Rogue One. He says, he has a, a moment about like, I've been in this fight since I was six. And now I just watched Andor. I'm like, well, were you really? I mean, sort of, but you were trying to avoid this fight since you were six. And then you got forced into it. Whereas there's a little moment where uh, Jimmy Smith talks about, oh yeah, the guy I know who's been in hiding since the, since the, the purge of the Jedi um, I'll go talk to him. Having seen the Obi-Wan series, which again is only like six episodes, that for me felt incredibly like it gave me more depth because obviously I've already seen the original movies. I know who that's going to be. I know it's going to be Obi-Wan. But seeing Jimmy Smith's relationship with Ewan McGregor and them talking in the show and having that whole extra like adventure that he had with little kid Leia, that feels like I now understand what their bond is. Whereas I'm not getting from Andor that I fully understand Andor's desires any more than I did just from what he says in Rogue One itself, because he mostly just has stuff happen to him in his own show. He doesn't make a whole lot of choices until the very end, which again, sounds like you think is intentional. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't work for me. He was indefinitely imprisoned by the Empire. Like that yeah. is informed his experiences. That's why he joined the rebellion. Like all of the things that happened in Andor, the reason why he's part of the rebellion. Like I feel like it does answer that. And I don't know that we learned significantly more about Obi Wan Kenobi through the Obi Wan series. Um, what like what do we learn about him? Yeah, I mean that's that is much more of a um, a, a character study of his like trauma and his doomed romance with Anakin Skywalker and like their horrible weird you know, romance that's gonna cause yeah. their deaths i like um, that i like the show but i don't learn i don't know anything more about obi-wan kenobi than i did i like he was in the desert like we thought he was yep like he was yeah for me it was oh i now i understand why jimmy smith trusts him like i get why he is so attached to the organa family i understand why leia who has never seen him before as far as we know it's like yep i trust that man with my life and he is my only hope and that like all of that that there's extra depth to 
this is like this old dude in the desert and she's like gonna go through hell or high water to send him a message like huh oh okay he's got like family history I've yeah i yeah. say from the uh at least from my osmosis of rogue one i was actually hearing what you're saying i i will want to watch it because from just understanding the plot points and seeing certain like clips rogue one actually made me feel really bitter about some of these films specifically because it seemed to me the plot of rogue one made made itself almost invalidated by the first star wars movie like in some ways I, i sat there and i was like i and i know it was kind of a meme joke but as I learned more about like what was happening, I went, oh man, this is, it's, it's not just tragic, but it's also Princess Leia is an asshole. This is terrible. Like you, oh my God. Yeah. You got to actually watch the movie. (laughs) But then actually watching Andor made me go, oh, the nature of the rebellion is in some ways an Ouroboros. Like the whole time the rebellion is happening, I began to understand, oh, Part of the point of the rebellion is it's not the mo- it's not a monolith versus a monolith. It's a bunch of competing forces, eventually trying to take a, at least topple this thing. Which I think Andor does really, really well. It represents that very well. But I mean, again, <laughs> I haven't seen the movie, so I probably this, this shouldn't is, get too mad about is, it. This is a great point too just to talk about why these things exist because that we we haven't foregrounded it right so the reason rogue one exists is because star wars sucks like i'm talking about a new hope that's why mm-hmm. rogue one exists is because what the fuck do you have like a kill switch on your planet destroyer for and it was like george lucas is a dumbass idiot it doesn't know how to plot a fucking It's been a meme and a joke since the earliest days of the internet is, well, why does this have such a badly engineered design? Right. And I think Rogue One, ex- I don't think, the reason Rogue One exists is to explain why, right? So that is a rebellion, like, it's a product of the rebellion. I guess no spoilers, right? <laughs> um, the reason Obi-Wan exists is to explain why Princess Leia sent him that message. But I don't need that explanation. It is a interesting explanation. But the reason she called him is because he's the guy with the fucking light sword. Like, he's the only Jedi left. That's the reason she called him in the original sort of like, oh, yeah, this guy has a big light sword. There's only one other guy with a light sword. And maybe he killed Darth Vader. Like, to me, that makes sense. The explanation we get in Obi-Wan is more satisfying. But, like, Star Wars keeps trying to, like, pick things up. Like, even in The Mandalorian, it's like, what is Yoda? Is a question that people want an answer to. Right. Or like, why did, how did Han Solo get his name? Nobody cares about the answer to that question. Yeah, so it, Star Wars has this whole mythology in these nine movies, and they're taking little moments out of them, like, well, why did Princess Leia call Obi-Wan? Why was there this massive defect in the design of the Death Star? Uh, why was, like, uh, why, why is his last name Solo? Like, and some of these questions <laughs> merit answers, Others of these questions do not merit answers. Um, and it is so strange the ones that they pick to do. Um, and, you know, we, we're going to get just like a deluge of these fucking things. Uh, yeah, but so speak- I will say that. Go ahead. I was going to transition by saying, speaking of sequels that 
probably don't need to exist. Well, yeah. So, so the last thing to say then is that the thing that Andor and Rogue One have in common, and I and Teddy, you know, report back to us when you've seen Rogue One. That movie makes me cry. Like it, like is cathartic and tragic, and like it, it, it that movie fucks you up. It's really, really good. Um, and I care about every one of those characters, despite the fact that each one of them only has like five minutes of screen time. I care about Donnie Yen and his, uh, you know, life partner and get the same kind of relationship that I feel like I get from what they're trying to do with um, the girlfriends in uh, Andor. But everything's like the emotion is so concentrated that it just hits harder for me. Anyway, but they're what they're both doing is trying to explain like Teddy's saying, that the rebellion is um, a the tip of an iceberg, and it's so complicated, and it's all of these little people trying to like make their way and figure it out. And the answer to this monolithic empire, which is a brittle form of power, is all of this organic, like people at sometimes working across purposes with each other, mm-hmm. people sacrificing themselves, little impacts that don't feel like they mean anything that eventually add up to something huge. And that's a beautiful message. Um, I just don't think it, it should take that long. But speaking of answers to, hey, why does this man have his name and um, sequels that shouldn't exist, this is a good transition into Wakanda forever. So. Yeah. Oh, God, God. They're uh, <laughs> Oh, I love that guy. I, I want to just foreground this. Um, you get just you know, you might as well. I should probably be calling me Namor on this show because I got no love for any of this shit. Um, that actor's awesome. That character's awesome. Um, I would love a prequel movie thing that is just watching Namor be, kill a bunch of Spaniards and like you know his whole story. He's so old. Like there's a lot of material there. I re I'm a sucker for Mesoamerican mythology. I think the rebuild they did on Namor's whole backstory is fantastic. Um, even if it is just basically the Atlantis movie that Disney made, but um, it's very very cool. He's very very cool. His reason for fighting makes basically no sense. This is one of the sorts of movies that we have sort of I think reverse engineered. We want them to fight. We want to smash the action figures together. So we need to come up with a very thin reason why that's going to end up making everyone look dumber, which is a shame because his character is very sweet. I just think he looks like an idiot in this. Uh, I don't think Namor yeah. is the only one who looks like an idiot in this movie. Oh, like, everybody looks like a dumbass in this movie. Continue. I. How do I. It is very clear that. Wakanda Forever was supposed to be different and the the comments that Ryan Coogler was initially making before uh, uh, Chadwick Boseman passed away versus what he started making afterwards I think makes made it feel a little odd in terms of kind of some of the tonal shifts specifically with Shuri and Oh, I can't remember the uh, the queen's name. Ramonda. Ramonda. With Shuri and Ramonda, they... It seemed a little misogynistic the way they're presented. Yes, they're, they, they present grief and they present having to lead while grieving and what that does to people in power. But having the two strong... Like, two strong female leads going through that and 
pushing forward, they're also 90% of the cause of their inept, no, ineptitude is such a strong word, but it seems to turn on a dime everything yeah. that they had represented in the first movie and why people were so so enamored with them. And I, I, I you know, I recognize grief does a lot to you is 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 a is a very valid concept but it also as in some ways what you were saying with sequel it retroactively makes some of the commentary from shuri like mbaku's right in the first movie shuri's a straight up child and she's grief like she she what, what the the entire reason she gets captured is because she didn't let the literal experts in uh espionage go pick someone up like it it, it is her fault <laughs> like a lot of this is her fault yeah there's a, a lot, lot of, of the like aggression is uh the queen's fault you know agreed there's a lot of like late season game of thrones daenerys targaryen problem here mm-hmm. where they're just like turn them on a dime because they have to get them towards like a like a big blowout fight so backing up real quick the first like 10 to 15 minutes of this movie are beautiful mm-hmm. like the funeral for for t'challa it's affecting. It's sad. They, it's really well shot, and they do a really nice memorial for him. It's an interesting choice to be like it's a, an unspecified illness that he hid from people until it was too late. I'm like, well, that's fucking sad. Um, and you know, they just kind of wrote Chadwick Boseman into the movie and then wrote him back out of the movie by doing those first fifteen minutes. It is tough. Like, it's an impossible position to get themselves out of, and I think they handled it pretty well. The problem is what comes after. And once we've established that, like, okay, he's gone, we've had this beautiful little funeral sequence for him, they start setting up some interesting ideas of the French can't live well enough alone. You know, the, who's going to hate a you know, strong, powerful, independent African nation more than the French? Cool. Villains. Easy. I like it. International politics. Interesting. Um, you've got another race of uh, hidden people under the sea. The cool, like, you know, pulling them as American mythology. He looks, Neymar looks super sweet. That's great. And then we get into just a bunch of, this is what I was thinking about with sequel bloat, of things that appear to happen simply because something similar happened in the first movie. There doesn't need to be a giant car chase in this movie, but there is because there was one in the last one. Like, the whole sequence that starts in the garage with, um, with Ironheart, uh, Riri Williams, and then they do a bunch of driving, and then, like, like that's just bloated wasted time. Um, there's a lot of stuff like that that just seems to have people wandering around aimlessly. Um, more Martin Freeman has basically nothing to do in this movie, and I'm okay with that. Like he's the token white guy in the movie. It's kind of the joke that he doesn't much have have much to do, but he might as well not be in it at all. Um, this idea of like I, I li- like seeing. Val, uh, Julie Louise Dreyfus, because she, we're setting her up for something down the road, but she doesn't really get character development. She's just kind of there to check a box. It feels like there's a lot of checking of boxes in this film. What do you think, Mouse? Um, I, I I disagree with you. I don't think that they wrote Chadwick out of the movie, and that's the whole fucking problem. They hmm. ghost is in this fucking movie the entire time. The reason that Ramonda acts the way she acts is because she lost her child and she doesn't want to lose the next one, so she acts impulsively. The reason Shuri can't 
access the mantle is because she has this vengeance on her mind because she lost her brother. They are so... His presence in this movie is so fucking distracting on so many levels. Because they can't let him go. It's so fucking tragic that he died in real life. And to also connect it back to Star Wars, Return of Skywalker should have taken place 15 years after, like, the events of Last Jedi. Like, Princess Leia should have been gone. They should have already dealt with mm-hmm. Because you're trying to make a movie that, that, that is, like, separated from the reality of the fucked up reality of our world, right? And I think they have to pay. This is what I think they should have done. Not made a movie. Chadwick Boseman has perished. The Black Panther in real life is gone. Like, how do you tell the story without with paying, like, due respect to him and also, like, making a good movie? You can't because every... Just make a Namor movie and, yeah. Yeah, you make it, like, do anything else. But, like, I think that they were, you know, committed to making something to pay tribute to him, which the first that's bookended by him, images of him, archival footage of him, um, also, this movie reeks of Chadwick is supposed to be doing all this. Chadwick mm-hmm. is supposed to be dealing with the death of his mother. Chadwick is supposed to be fighting somebody who is exactly like him in Namor. Chadwick is supposed Chadwick, Chadwick, Chadwick. That's why when you put Shuri into this before Letitia Wright can even carry a film, because she's a young, talented actor, but she can't carry this movie. They're putting a lot on her shoulders, and she doesn't have that range yet. Like, this movie is to me so like just impossible to make. Chadwick Bozeman dies in the beginning and then Angela Bassett dies in the middle. Obviously that was a weird choice. Yeah, obviously it was supposed to be T'Challa dealing with the grief of the death of his mother. And that is a result of Namor because in the comics that's what happened. Like Namor fucks up Wakanda brings it to its knees and then you have to have a ruler bring it back it is like so baffling i just don't know why they made this movie and it's fucking sad too the whole movie is sad because the whole time i'm thinking about it i saw this in theater yeah. and i rewatched it last night and i watched it with my wife and she was crying at the end of the movie and and it's weird because you're crying at the end of the movie and you're bored for the middle of it like and just exactly thinking about what the movie could be that's a great point and that's a great point about namor as he's clearly supposed to be a parallel for chala of you know the protector sons and you know their moms you gave them this power and they're now dealing with the loss of their moms and trying to avenge them. Like it's a perfect parallel. You can see why those two guys would, they're so similar that they'd immediately have beef mm-hmm. and then have to like work through it. And that's, that's a good story. Um, but yeah, seeing the little uh, montage of archival footage from the first film at the end of this movie, it's such a, like a, it's a risky choice. Cause I'm watching them being like, Oh yeah, that first movie was pretty good. He was such a good actor. I was bored through the second one. I'd rather be watching that first one. Um, and the like bringing his kids like secret kid in at the end just really like seals the deal on. We can't escape T'Challa. We can't escape this character. We can't escape getting out of the shadow of this character. We're going to keep his kid around and name him the same names. We never have to really let go. It is they're scared. They don't know what to do about it. 
And you're totally right. They should have just not made it or made something entirely differently. And you can tell there's bits and pieces that were left over from the first draft of we're going to kill his mom and he's going to deal with that. Except now he's dead. So we're going to have to have his sister dealing with it instead. Like this is gets now too many people have died and this is complicated. Yeah. yeah good point. So, so many people died. So fucking sad. I, yeah. I think it would have been a more affecting part of the movie for Shuri to leave this if it wasn't I don't know if it was a little more concentrated on the idea that she has been saying no I'm fine I can power through if that was the if that was truly the premise and not the original version which uh, um, mouse which I, I think you're kind of alluding to it seems like the original version was supposed to be right Chadwick Boseman is so good he's supposed to lead the MCU now like that was that seems like the clear direction things were supposed to go and now they're picking up the pieces and the idea that I think they could have done something a little more a little shorter and a little more uh, direct if it was Shuri's buried herself in work to deal with grief and that is the direction I think the thing that really unsold it for me was her talking to Killmonger. Well, I was Only just about because, to bring this up. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, the the thing with Killmonger, the whole they messed up with Killmonger the first time because the audience, most audiences went, actually we sort of agree with him. Like <laughs> this was not good. And the idea that oh they reduced all of all of that, the revolutionary thinking, the idea of no, no, I am the I'm the product of isolate of what your isolationism has done. I'm the product of that. That to it almost cheapens it by saying, no, he was it was it was a type of it was a type of pettiness of that's why he was trying to take over because he wanted to be uh, he wanted to get back at them instead of no there are systematic issues if we had a movie where shuri was like i need i'm throwing myself into work and they say you need to leave because you messed up a diplomatic relation or something and the rest of the movie was shuri going to america and trying to do stuff at mit going to haiti and being like oh wow i've only lived in wakanda mm-hmm. That like would the, have the been Buddha's journey of leaving the palace and becoming enlightened. Yeah, that's sweet. Yeah, I think that would have that would have brought it all together. But again, as you're saying, it feels like Chadwick was supposed to do this. It feels like Chadwick. The whole reason he would lose to Namor is because Namor has been like, I've been doing this as this stuff for so long. You are you don't know how to deal with what I know how to deal with. You're losing your you're 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 losing your shit, but you need to be calm and collected when you fight somebody like you, like me. But all of that gets incredibly muddled. The ending fight means nothing. There is no meaning between Shuri and Namor besides, well, no, there's just no meaning there. It's a, it's even to the fact that the fight like accomplishes nothing. They're like, Oh, you beat me fair and square. That's fine. We're allies now. No, not at all. (laughs) But this is also the point I was going to make about, like this, that was the mo. This is the moment where I realized that this movie was written for Chadwick Boseman. Shuri and Killmonger have no history. Imagine mm-hmm. that scene with Chadwick Boseman. 
They find Shuri finally figures out a way to 3D print the fucking uh, flower. He's able to get the power of the Black Panther back. He undergoes the ritual again. He, he taps into the ancestral plane. In the ancestral plane, he encounters Killmonger. That conversation plays much differently than it does with Shuri, who is basically the seventh lead of the first movie. What the fuck does she have to, like, what? It, there's no emotional resonance. But imagine if it's Chadwick yeah. talking to Michael B. Jordan. That's the movie. It's like you didn't change anything. This character has, like, no connection to any of these other characters. Why is she, and I, I, and I don't mind that they centralize Shuri. What I mind is that they centralize Shuri and, and have us, and want us to care about all of these relationships with people that she does not have. Lupita Nyong'o in this movie, like, do they even talk? I mean, they have, like, a, a scene or two together in the first movie. Her, all of her scenes are with Chadwick Boseman. When she pops mm-hmm. back into the movie, I'm like, oh, why is she here? She shouldn't be in this movie. He's gone. Like, it all is just so, like, it, for me at least, I'm watching the movie going, like, this is not right. <laughs> just foundation. Yeah, this is a Chadwick Boseman-shaped hole in everything. I think that's an awesome point, and it, and it, it really, I think, brings into full clarity why the movie feels so aimless. Like it doesn't have a direction, like it doesn't have a message because they didn't actually change it. They just swapped a person in but didn't really rewrite it in meaningful ways. Um, And because it's aimless, some of the most interesting uh, problems that – and real issues that the first Black Panther movie is trying to wrestle with of should one man have all this power, like the cost of isolation, the cost of of keeping this power to yourself, the fact that – Killmonger destroys all the flowers as like a way to then write that question out of the world of like, why is there only ever one Black Panther? Huh? Like, why are we hoarding the flowers? Okay, he burns them so nobody can have them. She, re- she 3D prints them. She starts to replant them. Now, any social commentary about the value of the flower, the value of isolation, the value of power, burning them. We've just decided we don't care about that question anymore, apparently. So we're just going to rebuild. We're going to reinstitute the system that T'Challa had to grapple with the consequences of. Like Killmonger only exists because of the inherent inequity of Wakanda's system. And now Shuri's like, well, but in order to like protect ourselves from the fish man, we need to like bring these old power structures back. We're not going to really interrogate that. And even she sees Killmonger, the guy who was trying to interrogate it, and they have like a conversation that doesn't really make sense. And then we never tell them, like, eh, don't worry about it. It's better to have the Black Panther so we can have cool superhero fights. We're going to pretend like we never had that conscience to begin with. That sucks. Yeah, and then it's also so weird to watch a movie that's paying tribute to, <laughs> paying tribute to somebody whose life was cut short, and then also to be like, oh, they're setting up Ironheart. Like, they're setting up... I wanted to ask you about this. Why is Riri Williams in this movie? Man. Yeah, what is she here for? It it is an all nonsensical. This movie is, I mean, talk about bloat. I'm 100% with you on this movie. This movie has so many bizarre detours, so many odd developments, so many. uh, Martin Freeman does nothing. He should be cut from the film. Mm -hmm. Riri Williams does nothing. He should be cut from the film. This movie is 
full of a bunch of nonsense that doesn't need to be in it. Lupita Nyong'o does nothing except destroy the entire premise that Namor is smart somehow. Because single-handedly, she goes into a village, talks to one old lady, and then finds a kingdom that hadn't been fucking found in centuries. Like, the movie is so confounding in its use of characters. Like, this movie should be Angela Bassett and the future right. It should be like co-leads in the movie. There should be some kind of um, mother-daughter dynamic. They should be fighting the French. The, just fight the French. Yeah, yeah. It, it could even be Namor. You just need a different way. You also need to emphasize Okoye more and Baku more, the characters we give a shit about. You need to cut Lupita out. You need to cut Martin Freeman out. They are paying so much. I think that the critique that you have of Van Dorn, if you apply that critique to Wakanda Forever, I would 100% agree. You are spending too much time focusing on characters who have absolutely nothing to do with the story, who do not propel it forward in any way, and who actually their, present, their presence undercuts other characters in the movie, where it's like, mm-hmm. oh, Namor's just a goddamn fucking idiot? That's what I'm meant to believe? Oh, anyone? This guy is the savior of his whole people? Yeah, right. Anyone also, it makes it almost makes no sense for like the entire oh we need to keep this secret. It's a weird parallel between uh, Atlantis and Wakanda, specifically because to me when I watched Wakanda Forever, it gave me the impression that the reason why their civilization stayed secret is because oh right there just aren't going to be that many people who breathe. Uh, who are warriors who can breathe underwater. Most of our people are civilians. We have a small army. Wakanda's whole thing is we're keeping this resource in this one spot. Now, at no point in time do they actually say that in the text of the film. That's just the impression I got. But Mm. it's a very odd, like Namor coming up and saying, hey, you all need to get your stuff on lock because they're about to come for us, makes absolutely no sense for him to do that because the Wakandans didn't know he existed. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a bunch of, yeah, it's the most flimsy get from point A to point B to make them fight. And it's Riri Williams is confounding to me in this film because we're just watching her speed run the Iron Man movies of like, you know, they even give her a couple of shots like, look, she's just like Tony Stark. But the, the, the only thing I like about her story is that it presents the idea that the CIA will absolutely steal your school project because I'm sure that happens at MIT, and I think that's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> if you make anything of value at MIT, the CIA will grab it from you. Hilarious. Um, but her, she's got like some lines that are supposed to be interesting about like being young and gifted and black, and I like the idea of her as a a follow-up to the Killmonger story of somebody else who could benefit from Wakanda's resources, could benefit from Wakanda's guidance, who has a parallel with Shuri, um, and, but has been like trying to, has been isolated, is trying to make it on her own, is like doing other people's homework for money because she has to like scrape by. There's something there. I don't think it should be in this movie though. And the fact that they're shoehorning her in as this like the one scientist, the CIA already has the technology. You, you expect me to believe they're not just going to reverse engineer it and make another 
uh, I was going to say dilithium. That's not right. Um, <laughs> uh, it's not adamantium. Vibranium. There we go. Yeah. Um, another vibranium detector. You 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 steal the one girl, and suddenly you're under your under city. Your underwater city is safe. Like that's stupid. Yeah. So here's yeah. Here's, it sucks that she has nothing to do. Falcon and Winter Soldier. Riri yeah. Would have been go. an amazing addition in that show. That's a great idea. Here's a proposed fix for this movie. So, and this is what I thought they were doing, and I was uh, wrong. So they said that there is a scientist who developed a thing, uh, to, uh, a, a way to detect vibranium. I didn't know Riri Williams was in this movie. I also like couldn't watch the trailer because I thought it was going to be too fucking sad. I thought that they were talking about Ezekiel State. I thought that they were going to introduce uh, Obadiah Stane's son into the MCU and that it was going to be a like him doing a kind of fast and furious thing where he divides the parties, they go to fight each other, they realize that he's actually the bad guy. The, the fact that it is instead they have to protect the scientist is where the movie starts to unravel. The scientist should have been a bad guy because that's such a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. But like, I thought that that's what it was going to be because Zeke Stain is like all up in fucking uh, uh, Black Panther comic books. He's always fucking around with Wakanda and Vibranium and he's always teaming up with Claw and shit like that, who they already burned. He's, he's, he, he's on a fucking prison in the middle of the water. He can't swim. Um, <laughs> uh, the joke Andy Circus played both characters. Um, but like that's what I thought they were going to do was introduce a third villain because there's no way that you bring Namor into the movie and have this like parallel thing and then have it end in a in a in a in a in a, in a conflict. And it now seems like he's biding his time and they're setting up a sequel that I don't give a shit about. Like according to Letitia Wright, they're pre-producing, they're in pre-production for Black Panther 3. Ryan Coogler, I believe, is out on that project. And so it's just going to be like, who knows? A bunch of nonsense, yeah. No, this yeah. is such a better idea. You get Ezekiel Stain, you have him teaming up with Val, um, Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Like, her whole shit, like, the one line that's interesting that she has is, I dream of a world where the U.S. is the only the only country that has access to vibranium. Like, she obviously has a vested interest doing her, like, Secret Wars, Secret Avengers, Black Ops bullshit in the background of, of trying to uncover these folks. The idea that she would have, and it makes her look better, if she has some knowledge about there's somebody else out there who has vibranium, teams up with a scientist to expose them, and in classic Stanley Marvel style, the big bad in the background is orchestrating a reason to get the heroes to fight each other. The fact that Namor has to orchestrate his own reason to fight and be the bad guy and then end in, like, a non-issue, the fact that there is no, like, actual big bad and we're all just kind of, the big bad is grief, I guess, right. sucks and is unsatisfying. Also, you have the opportunity of putting Zeke Stane in a fucking vibranium Iron Man suit. Oh, right. Fucking rule. Um, Can I yeah. put a... Uh, uh, uh... A hypothetical, like a, a go for it. Yeah. Uh, so, looking at what you're talking about with sequel bloat and kind of what what's been talked about so far, I would like to propose that sequel as a as a loaded term maybe should be eliminated from our lexicon and 
trying to make a sequel and i think it should be more like and please excuse the it's not a double meant to be a double entendre but a new chapter or a new entry would be way more it is lends itself to being way more apt so like if we look at something like knives out Two, the glass onion and i know uh mouse you're not like super keen on glass onion but what it does compared to these I no, know, no 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 uh, loves that. we love that not, not me not me oh no i'm wrong i'm sorry how dare you i shared that i had heard people criticize glass onion for various reasons that i disagree with that's what it was i'm sorry i miss miss yeah. under uh but i think it's it makes more sense when you were when you think about some of these properties in terms of new chapters or new entries in a larger story mm -hmm. than a, a, a sequel or a spiritual successor, because if we look at Wakanda forever, if we look at, Oh goodness. Amazing Spider-Man two. If we look, you can look at cross across genres across <laughs> across properties and across studios. They always try and do this. Oh, but we've, we are trying to do this the same thing but new and better instead of we have another expansion we have another mm. part of this story to tell what, what do you all think? now that's a great point because i mean this is the way comic books work and the end in fact is in the best interest of these content producers of there's always more content just add another chapter, expand the world, let us learn something more, let us bring new characters in, let us play in this space. That's what we like about world building. The, the studio idea of do it the same but bigger <laughs> mm -hmm. um, is the sequel problem. That's why sequel gets a bad rap of like, we don't really know why we're making this movie except that we, we like know we want, we like money and we think people like the previous one, but we can't really identify what people liked about the previous one. So rather than being brave and like expanding the world and telling us new stories in the world or like deepening our relationship with the characters, we're just going to be like, well, the last one had a car chase. So we'll put a car chase in this one. And the last one had like, you know, this kind of joke. So we'll put this kind of joke in it again. And you just try to like hit the same beats, but have, have a bigger budget and longer fight scenes. And that's the worst kind of sequel. And this is like the difference between, you know, your Iron Man 2 and your Winter Soldier. Like Iron Man 2 is like, well, the same but bigger. Here's another guy with a different, slightly different kind of suit. Uh, and we'll have, you know, whereas Winter Soldier, like here's an entirely new chapter. We're going to deepen and widen what's going on. And we'll call back in interesting ways. But we're telling a very different story. Yeah, that's the that's the that's the key is that you have to tell a different story. I mean. When you think about a sequel like uh, Home Alone 2, I don't know the difference between Home Alone 1 and Home Alone 2 because those right. movies operate such that Kevin McAllister gets lost in a house and then he sets a bunch of booby traps for, like, what ha what's the second one? What's the first one? Is, are the wet bandits in both? I don't know. It's just one movie in my head. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these Marvel movies operate in that way where it is the same and it's not just marvel movies too because like ghostbusters 2 is they bust ghosts again like that movie is all also like totally unmemorable and then when you think about the the ones that we started off with empire strikes back is like totally different from star wars it's totally different yep. from a new hope it's like 
there's like a green puppet guy like teaching Luke how to be a Jedi and he's like hitting R2-D2 with a stick in a swampland like this is totally different from the fucking deserts and the ship of the first movie like this is absolutely like a different thing and then the Godfather is like the second one takes place all in Italy and shit like Robert De Niro is in it it's like a different fucking thing and I think that when you get into the sort of like content machine that we're in it's almost like movie studios are being influencers like they're Mm -hmm. like very expensive YouTube videos where it's like you can watch any Jake Paul vlog and it's the same thing he's like I don't know eating Cheetos I've never seen one he's doing the same shit that he did in the last one um where it's like these are very expensive vlogs that they are producing where the same goddamn thing happened. And we've reached this point in Marvel where what's the last good one that came out? Yeah. Like, that's good property or show? Movie. Oh. The last good Marvel movie? I don't I couldn't answer that question. Like has it been in the last ten years? I'm not sure. <laughs> I have no idea. I've been some pretty decent Marvel TV, but like the movies just, you know, they just keep spitting out the same shit because they're not willing to take a leap into a different genre or a different, a really different chapter. And that is, yeah, um, Teddy, I think you nailed it. Yeah. It fucking sucks. Uh, Are there any on the horizon? I guess Quantumania might be an interesting sequel insofar as it will have to be very different from the first two Ant-Man movies and because they're introducing Kang in that movie. But again, it's like, who gives a shit about... It's going to be a Kang movie. It might as well be called Ant-Man and the Wasp and then strike through and then just call it Kang. It should just be called Kang. Kang. (laughs) Yeah, Kangmania. That would be... That would be be sick. I like that a lot. Yeah, and that's gonna that's gonna be the great question is like how many beats like if it's a bad movie, the reason why is going to be somebody sat down with the first two Ant Man movies and went, okay, let's make a list of all the things that defines an Ant Man movie and make sure we have this kind of fight scene and this kind of joke and this kind of special effect. And guess what? Nobody gives a shit about any of those because the Ant Ant Man character and those movies were kind of boring. First one was like mildly entertaining and totally forgettable. If you try to like, well, we'll do that, but bigger, it will be a total snooze fest. If you say this is an opportunity to widen our world and introduce new things, which from the trailer seems like what they're doing. Okay, what what happened to Michelle Pfeiffer all that time in the quantum realm? What is the quantum realm? Like, yeah, let's introduce a bunch of weird shit. Basically, we've we've established and recognized that nobody cares about Ant-Man and there's no story there. But we've got it on the release schedule so we can use it as a vehicle to introduce a bunch of new stuff and go in a different direction and make a different genre movie. Now we're talking. Now it has potential. Yeah. Yeah. The Marvels could be cool. Yeah. Again, if it decides to be something truly different and we don't try to check the boxes of, well, we got to have an airplane chase and we got to have, you know, a Nine Inch Nails song and, you know. There's got to be a night snail song. I hate to break it to you. Uh, that's that's uh, the thing I'm least worried about, them repeating. <laughs> I like those songs. 
so the marvels basically <laughs> if it was the batman so matt reeves should direct the marvels there should be like an entire yeah. nirvana soundtrack it should be really dark and gritty <laughs> somebody should make out with zaza uh, zaza beats uh, you know like, and I'm, I think... I'm happy to have that in every movie <laughs> that's fun to me Brie larson must say contractually i hear where the diamonds are see something like that <laughs> somebody sings ave maria you know it's, mm-hmm. it's perfect one of them sells <laughs> insurance for sure <laughs> you're like is that person a cop it's like oh no he's an insurance salesman no oh, i guess <laughs> um every film noir guy is an insurance salesman <laughs> yeah that's right uh who has like insane access to the police department like records and shit uh not like batman honestly so uh we're wrapping up here um any any cool wrecks that you would like to share with us or the audience recently i i I think i would not recommend physical 100 we started with that that show is very weird but i'll i'll get back and uh i'm gonna finish it uh if i ever work out again i'll watch it um so hopefully that'll motivate me to finish that show i'll i'll let you know what the best physique is oh yeah yeah and this is what i want to because i'm like i'm eventually going to finish man versus bear and i will tell you like what the best human physique is for fighting bears so i need to know what the other <laughs> best human and we'll compare and see if they're the same what if the same person <laughs> <laughs> i don't think there are any koreans competing on man versus bear but maybe there should be <laughs> Well, my recommendation is Rogue One, which is not recent, but Teddy needs to watch it because it is like deeply affecting. And for me is right up there with Empire Strikes Back as like movies that transcend Star Wars and aren't just good Star Wars movies. And there are you know pitiful few of those, but are just like good movies, just period. So I would Teddy, recommend you? The, uh, the Last of Us. I will say there are. Oh, I got to see that. There yeah, I haven't started yet either. Very few. Okay, I can. I I have five episodes of television that I can say these are the best episodes of television I have ever seen. Whoa. The Last of Us episode three is one of the best episodes of television I've ever seen. Uh, w- the only thing that's slightly better than that is uh, Dark Quiet Death from Mythic Quest is is one of the best episodes of television. Period. That's cool. Um, um, yeah, the the lead uh, hotel manager from season one of The White Lotus is in episode three of Last of Us. Yeah. And yeah. he's fantastic. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Um, You're speaking so, my language. That would be my recommendation. Yeah, because I've been wanting to watch Last of Us. I played the game, so I kind of know what happens. Um, and so I was, I've been sort of hesitant to start because that's weird. Because the game is also, have you played the game, Teddy? I haven't. I've seen a couple walkthroughs and I started the second one, but I haven't played the first one. And I'm still enjoying the show. It, it's so weird because the game is a movie. It's like mm-hmm. structured that way. So it's very cinematic. And so I would, but hearing you say that and other people who have played the game say that it's such a good show, there must be something that is like distinguishes it from the game. Because I had like, I remember playing that game. It came in the bundle with the PS4, like when the PS4 first came out. It was like one of the big launch games. And I remember playing it and just being like, this is like 
the closest thing you can do to playing a movie where it just like unfolded in this way that was like extremely cinematic, such a weird but brilliant game. And so I was like, how are they going to turn this into a TV show? It like kind of already exists as the game. Um, but you, you, you recommending it and also one of our other friends recommending it, who I know played the game, uh, is, is heartening. Um, they're also like an hour and a half long this episode, aren't they? Uh, they're like 55 minutes each. Oh, okay. Maybe it was just the first one that was super long. Um, the first one is is long. Yeah, I think that's next on our list also. I'm always looking forward to that. So, yeah, we'll probably be starting that soon. Well, if we all... Looks super depressing. <laughs> if we all converge, uh, then, we, then we can have an episode of The Last of Us in like July 2024. Yeah, that, 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 that's our schedule. That sounds about right. <laughs> All right, that, that'll do it for this episode of Is This Is Bad. Stay off social media, but email us at isthisisbad at gmail.com. Bye. Is this just bad? Bad? It's like what pirates board your brain, robbing knowledge, no joking. Opening your mind with a crowbar till you're woken, hitting Hydra, hailing hairs, have a time for hella reasons. We're more than winter soldiers, with the men for all seasons. Listen closely while we share our expertise in cosmic comics culture. Dean is free tuition to the multiversity. Mouse is psycho teaching perfect balance when we snap infinite gems into your ears. Dust our shoulders when we speak. Purple man persuasive feet. Randy Savage rattles with immortal technique. Ooh.